Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. My role is as the program person for the Department of Afro-American and African Studies. Over the years, it's grown to encompass a lot of different things because I began as the librarian there. So, you know, I still do a lot of maintaining the history of the department, which we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. So it really is in line with, you know, the whole civil rights movement and all that happened, you know, on our nation, you know, so many of our Black Studies departments across the country all were being founded around that same time. So being a part of that proud legacy, I serve on the MLK Symposium Committee. I'm on the DEI Staff Advisory Board. And I think my greatest joy comes from being the advisor for the Black Student Union and also for the National Council of Negro Women. I think what we're seeing now I also am a doula, and so for me, that's something that I feel very much is happening. The whole birthing process is something that I feel the world is going through right now as it pertains to racism and the whole issue about how do we come to terms with this legacy that has been with us since 1619. This year, we had Nicole Hannah-Jones come speak in our department, and her working on that project, I think, really helped me to see how this legacy is just so deeply entrenched and ingrained in all that we are. And so, as Americans, we really got to look very deeply within and say, hold on, what are some of these narratives that I have been immersed in and what are some of the things that I have you know taken in not even realizing that it's been infused into my psyche so it's it's going to be a long hard struggle but I really feel like we hit a tipping point this year and you know I feel like there's a number of reasons why and so I'm really excited to see what comes of this because it doesn't feel like before as someone who my grandmother was a very staunch activist and had always been you know coming up from the south and the legacy of you know moving to Detroit and working with such great people like Grace Lee and Jimmy Boggs and the folks in Detroit she took me as a little little tiny girl to the march on Detroit with Dr. King in 1963. So it's been a part of my heritage, you know, and so just thinking about how that energy was electric. I don't remember, you know, the march other than I just remember being amongst many people and there was a really powerful energy. And that's the same type of energy I'm feeling now that people are not going to back down, that people finally, I think, are ready. And perhaps it has to do partially with the coronavirus pandemic, because the world was quiet and everybody had to be still. And then in the midst of this, off jumps 
yet another example of a black person being murdered after a series of them all within this corona quarantining. So it was like, how are black people dying in the midst of, you know, us being allegedly kind of shut down? So I find myself thinking a lot about that in terms of this was the moment for that perfect storm, if you will, where people saw it, they were able to witness it in ways that in the past people could share stories about horrible, you know, tragedies that occurred people being lynched over the years, all the way back to Ida B. Wells and her crusade against lynching. And now you've got it on video. People are able to see it. People are shocked at the length of it. I still have not been able to listen or see it all. You know, just even visual of the photo kind of overwhelms me because it's, it's just so, you can't believe another human would do that to someone they considered a human. And I think that's where it struck a nerve with everyone. And so I feel as though this truly is the moment where Grace Lee Boggs always said, another world is possible. I feel that right now we're birthing that new world. It shakes you to your core because you know how easily it could be you. And I think that's something that in speaking with my white friends and others who have never been frightened by the sight of the police, who've never been stopped and had your heart just racing because you weren't sure how you were going to be treated or who was going to be walking up to the car beside you. And it could be something as simple as, you know, just going through a stop sign. One time I I was stopped and I just, I froze in the police person was saying, you know, it's okay. And I'm, I'm sitting there crying because I really was frightened and that shouldn't be happening. These are the people who are supposed to protect and serve us. And yet you never know if you're going to be the one. And so the students seem kind of shocked. Some people are numbed. It runs that whole gamut and even down to, you know, reading, you know, about it as a as an academic thinking about what those words mean that he spoke you know all of that kind of is moving through your head because just like all of us we're complex and so it's a visceral feeling there's a very much an intellectual connection to it in terms of you know what's going on there's a physical reaction because as humans, for that length of time to be spent, you know, that's why I think I could only take like a minute of it because you think this was going on for a long time. You can hear people calling out for him to stop. And yet this look on his face was so dark and just really menacing. So I think all of that really played into that concern and fear that many of us have had in America. And it's been long before things have been able to be videoed. It's been long before Trayvon Martin. It's been long before Emmett Till. It's this deep innate knowledge within the Black community that you're just not safe. You know what? I see it with the kids, talking with them, the students, how they'll feel about being stopped. They have a totally different reaction 
than the white students that I work with because, you know, most of them are like, oh yeah, you know, I got a ticket where I can see that the black students are visibly shaken. You know, what's amazing to me is these are, for the most part, which kind of really shocks and stuns me, our fresh people, they are coming in and they were born after 2000. So they have not known a world. It's all post 9-11. It's post so many things that, you know, America has struggled with on so many different levels in terms of racism. And they hear about Dr. King, but it, he may as well be you know, Abraham Lincoln to them because he's historical, you know, whereas in my mind, I'm like, I actually saw him. This person actually existed. And, you know, when you tell them, they're kind of sitting and all listening to these stories. But at the same time, all of this is way beyond when they have begun their lives and are living it now. So there's a fearlessness that I see that I really appreciate. And they make me brave because they're kind of saying, this is ridiculous. You know, we don't have to live like this. We're humans too. You know, we're here at the University of Michigan. We're bright. We're getting our educations. We want to make the most of our lives. So to be treated in this manner is simply, you know, ludicrous. And when I hear that, just perks me up because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, they're totally living and thinking outside a box that I have contained myself within, trying to make myself smaller, trying to make myself invisible so that, you know, I'm not discriminated against, trying to assimilate into something. You know, I always say I'm that same generation with Obama. So we're the dreamers. We're the ones who came out of the civil rights movement, really believing everything was going to be okay. And then when it slammed us in the face that it wasn't, it was kind of like, wait a minute, we've got to instill this in our children, in our families. But it was still a question in our hearts about whether we were actually going to see it. And for the students, they're like, you know, of course we're going to see it. Of course we're going to march. Of course, we're going to get out there and, you know, petition and do all these things that we need to do. We're not afraid. This is our country, too. And I sit there just totally in amazement at this incredible strength. Now, that's not to say that they don't have moments when they get frightened or that, you know, I haven't heard some of them, you know, waver, you know, all of us after seeing the video after so many of them in such close proximity. So when you think about Ahmad, Brianna, and then George coming in rapid succession, I think that that was something that, you know, even though we're in quarantine, the students were like, wait a minute, something has to be done. And so this mobilization that you're seeing on a national level and on a world level, you know, my colleagues in South Africa were like, we're standing with you. We're, we're rocking beside you, you know, and in the midst of a pandemic, you know, which also has, I believe, underlying racist issues just in terms of how hard hit the Black community was by it. Well, you know, I had so many friends in the city 
who couldn't gain access to the hospital. They'd go and people would turn them away. And of course, I know that many of the beds were filled, but you find yourself questioning something that you shouldn't even be questioning. And I think that's that self-doubting. Those are those moments that are kind of surreal because you realize you're not living in the same America that others are. And then, of course, you know, I'm also Native and Powhatan. And so, you know, when you have to see what's happening in the Native communities, the racism there in terms of, you know, how people are being cared for, oh my gosh, it's just, it's stunning. So it's like layers. You had the virus first, then you had these deaths. And it seems like that's the part that tipped everything. And that's why I keep saying tipping point, because I think that's what you saw the students start to react to that and say, you know what? No, 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 no. We're not going to stand for this and we're going to march. I was a children's librarian before I came to Michigan and we're very much like the Sneetches. We seek out like if you have a star on your belly, you're going to sit with one group. And if you don't, you have you sit with the other group. And I think that it all begins with reaching across and saying, I don't need a black person to just be on the DEI committee. I want them on another committee that I feel that they're qualified for. It's about having not necessarily conversations where you walk up and just say, hey, how are you feeling about being black today? You know, or, you know, I've had a lot of really beautiful messages from friends reaching out in support, but my oldest, dearest friends who know me well, so often race is not what the conversation is about. And so it's just being human to human, heart to heart, speaking about the things that Maya Angelou so eloquently says, we are more alike than unalike. Reaching out and understanding that we're all going through the same human experience. And if we just start with that level, it becomes so much more authentic than when we try to contain things in boxes. And again, that's where the students kind of help me to understand that. Yes, it's really comfortable to be able to talk about things that you have in common with other people, but it's also really exhilarating and you gain so much more knowledge from finding out about some of the differences that we have. You know, I love, you know, finding out about different cultures and what types of foods people eat. I mean, that's always an easy, groundbreaking kind of conversation about, you know, what do you have on your Thanksgiving table? What do you have? You know, not necessarily Thanksgiving's not one of my favorite meals, but, you know, what do you have on, you know, any of the other holidays? And, you know, just starting there, I think we have to break it all the way down as we see America doing right now so that we can build it back up. You know, we've got a foundation that's built on and written by founding fathers who, let's face it, they were older white men. And so when you even talk about what the, the basis of our world is built on here in America, it really is one that was pretty narrow-minded where Blacks weren't even considered human, three-fifths of a person. So 
we've got to break that all the way down, which is why I think so many people kind of plugged into Hamilton and that whole kind of turning it on its head and saying, hey, wait a minute, what would happen if, and those are the things that I love, when you have a moment where you say, what would happen if, if? and I think that that's something that is definitely possible. We're intelligent. We can do this. It's just we really have to give it a try in much the same way as I try not to, you know, junk food and quarantine. We have to find ways to, you know, work a little harder, really stop and think about what we're saying and how we're saying it, and just really try to be kind to one another. One of the ways I would suggest is educating yourself as much as possible. I think that that's something that a lot of people don't know about Black history in America. An easy way to do that is to start with the 1619 podcast, listen to those. You know, so much is to be gained and gleaned from that material. Continue from that point to just, you know, start reading articles and, you know, easy. You don't have to you know, become a dance major, <laughs> you know, I mean, though I would love if everybody did take some dance courses, but you know, you can begin to really try to educate yourself because that's where the transmission occurs, simple ways, so that then when you do speak to colleagues and folks that you know, once we are finally back on campus, interacting with one another, you're coming from a place of understanding. We've always had to learn. It's, you know, what WB calls double consciousness. Blacks have always had to learn how to live in a white world because that's where the power lies. So now I think it's time to kind of try to flip that and have others try to figure out, okay, what's going on here? We have a really diverse population at U of M. Of course, Blacks are very small in that number, but I do believe that with more interaction, with, you know, just maybe even a simple, I have had some of my colleagues just send me a text and say, how are you doing today, thinking about you? It can be very small things. I think so often we try to go big, and of course, that's the U of M way. You know, the big blue machine, everything is, you know, the best and brightest and I think that that can be accomplished, but it all starts with little things. You know, it starts with those small gestures that really make a difference. And I, I'm hopeful because I have seen that over these past months in quarantine, you know, even to the extent of thinking about ability issues on high risk because of having had a transplant. So, you know, people reaching out just to see how I'm doing that way to the same being true in terms of, you know, once folks started understanding how coronavirus was really impacting the Black community, people were reaching out when I knew I suffered losses and were so compassionate. And I think those very, very simple and then, you know, continually more complicated conversations can be ways in. Because right now, African-Americans, as Rob said in his letter, you know, are really tired and we're weary. And so even in the midst of us all 
trying to work here through this quarantine and working remotely, we're also having to deal with, you know, these images that we're seeing on a regular basis. I had barely gotten past Rihanna hearing about her, hearing about Ahmad, and then here's George. So it's these moments where it's just like a waterfall coming over you. I think that this ripple really, really exacerbated the issue. And I think that that's, again, why that tipping point, it was like no more. And that's, again, why I'm so proud of the students because just seeing their, their Twitter feed and heaven knows they have all of these things now, Snapchat, TikTok. I was like, what's the next thing going to be? But, you know, within the time that even over the past five years, there have been so many more social media platforms that they're out there just really, really expressing themselves and being able to explain and speak from their hearts about things that so many of us who are older have held inside or maybe just talked about among their family. You know, they're able to really express how that feels. And it's, it's a powerful thing. I hope that people will stand up and stand with people. That's one thing that has really struck me about this current movement is seeing the diversity in the crowds. Before, when we marched, it was usually just African-Americans marching. You know, the march in Detroit, it was primarily African-Americans. There were some whites in the crowd. I remember that. But then when you move on to you know, the March on Washington, the Million Man March. And so when you think about these huge marches, they've been primarily us out there saying, we need to change. But now seeing everybody together, even the protests that I saw in Ann Arbor and Detroit, it's a diverse crowd. And I think that's something that definitely indicates that people are recognizing that relinquishing a little of that power dynamic, it doesn't make you weaker. It makes you stronger. And I think that's always been the part about diversity that a lot of people miss is that that whole sense of diversity, equity, and inclusion is trying to show us that all of us benefit from this. It's not just the people of color who are the ones who are the beneficiaries. It's someone else learning things they never knew, someone else being able to really understand what their neighbor is going through when they have a crisis like this. You know, it could be so much. And I, I think about, you know, the beautiful metaphor of how if you share your candlelight with another person, you don't lose your candlelight. You know, the the light continues to grow and build from there. And so I think that's how it must be in terms of us reaching out and trying to vanquish this horrible scourge that has caused so much. It's just awful what has happened in our nation for so many years. And I think it's just time. We have too much blood on the land and we really have to find ways to heal. And so I'm excited, I'm hopeful that tomorrow is going to be a better day, that we'll never be the same. And nor should we. You know, 
we can't go back. We can't go back. We have to keep moving forward. So that's what I would say in terms of, you know, just what I'm hoping people will glean from this moment in history. And 2020 is going to be one for the books, I'm telling you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.